I'm Erica Ducey. And I'm Felicity Carter. And you're listening to The Business of Drinks, a podcast dedicated to helping drinks businesses grow and thrive. Whether you're in wine, beer, or spirits, or the non-alcoholic drink space, in functional beverages or seltzers and sodas, we've got you covered. We take a holistic approach to drinks, looking at new business opportunities and the products and categories that get customers excited. This season, we're doing a deep dive on millennial and Gen Z audiences and their drinking behaviors. We even commissioned our own research on the topic and we'll be talking with experts all season long. Thanks for joining us and let's dive in. What are we talking about this week, Erica? Well, this week we are talking about wine. And why, you may ask, are we talking about wine? Well, as our regular listeners will recall, this season we've been doing a deep dive into what's resonating with millennial and Gen Z consumers. So far, we've focused on the biggest emerging opportunity, which is the non-ALK sector. We've talked to a top NA beer producer, Bill Schufelt of Athletic Brewing, about building a $500 million company, and the CEO of a drinks incubator, Heidi Dillon of Distill Ventures, about why the Diageo-backed company is investing so so much into the low and no space. And we've talked with several other people. But now we are branching out looking for those other bright spots among millennial and Gen Zs. And that takes us directly to cans. So canned wine is without a doubt the brightest spot in the wine industry right now. While most other parts of wine are flat or down, wine in cans is expected to grow at a compound annual growth rate topping 13% for the entire next decade as it scales from $1 billion to $4 million market segment. So, you know, much of the data that I've seen about canned wines and its surge is really attributing the growth to millennials. So both the affordability of cans, the sustainability of cans, these are making them very popular with this younger audience. And in fact, that was what we saw in the survey we conducted of 1,300 millennials and Gen Zs. So about 20% of that audience report that they are buying canned wine at this point, which is pretty interesting. I mean, I don't know a lot of older people that are buying canned wine, so I feel like like it's it's definitely getting a lot of growth opportunity from the younger people. Speaking on behalf of the old geezers here, <laughs> I would absolutely buy canned wine if any good stuff was available to me. Most of what's been uh, available in cans, not all of it, but most of it has has really not been great. But I mean, in principle, they're lightweight, they're easy to transport, you can open them easily, you can take them anywhere, and the quality just seems to be getting better and better, which is the point of what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, and I think that that's really true. That's what makes today's guest, Sarah Hoffman, who's one of the co-founders of Maker Wine. That's what makes uh, this episode particularly interesting is that Maker Wine is a company, it was launched in late 2019, and they are focused not just on canned wine, but on canning very high quality wine, fine wine. Mm. And so this is a new and emerging opportunity. Their brand is omni-channel now. It started out in DTC. And really their point of differentiation is that it's the fine wine and that they're working with many small winemakers. So uh, what's what I, I think is interesting is if you go up on their site, you see the winemakers front and center. So it's kind of like this visibility platform for some small winemakers meaning they're prominently featuring the winemakers in the marketing and on the cans. And it's a great story. So Sarah and her co-founder, Kendra Koala, they met at Stanford where they were both doing an MBA and they would meet after class for a glass of wine. You know, one thing led to another. Suddenly they are in business. And so far they've raised more than $2.3 million, uh, even though neither of them had a background in wine. Yeah, it's a great story. It actually reminds me of the business Rent the Runway, the multi-million dollar fashion company, which was founded by two women who met at Harvard while doing an MBA. So I was thinking, you know, maybe we should sign up for an MBA. Imagine what we could do with business of drinks. Yeah, yeah. I like it. Okay, so getting back to them, I think the fact that they've built such a successful company, even though they don't have a classic wine background, highlights how important it is to have solid business skills. Uh, you know, I've, I've been reporting on wine for many, many years, and uh, it's always frustrating because wine is a very romantic product, and many, many people who are huge wine lovers unfortunately don't always find 
find success when they try and work with their passion in a business way because they forget that you need to be as comfortable with the spreadsheet as what's in the glass. Yeah, it's a great point. And, you know, we asked Sarah uh, a lot about the financial picture. So how she raised money, you know, if she has other tips for people who are looking for investment. And as she pointed out, many of the larger VC funds, they won't invest in alcohol because they consider it a vice category. So often people working in beverage alcohol, they have to look at alternate routes to capital like individual investors, private equity, or beverage-specific funds. Yeah, that's right. And the other key point she made is that they've done things very differently from many in the wine business. So what Maker is doing is panning fine wine, and the founders have a very close relationship with the people who grow the grapes and make the wine. Yeah. And, you know, later, a third co-founder joined them as well, Zoe Victor, who also comes from Stanford. She had a background in operations, uh, and she was in a different class than theirs. Mm. But between the three of them, you know, they're bringing digital marketing background, finance background, and business operations background. So it's a pretty strong team. Uh, And we should also mention, you know, their mission-led company, which does go out of its way to showcase those winemakers, like I said. And uh, the winemakers are really coming from a a variety of diverse backgrounds, including women, LGBTQ+, and winemakers of color. So it's a great story. There's a lot there um, on our favorite topics. There's about finance and money, there's a mission, and there's wine. Love it. So let's get into it. And now, a word from our sponsor, ExcelPay. At the Business of Drinks, we talk about building successful brands. But there's one crucial element that many overlook, the e-commerce experience. It's true. I've landed on so many terrible BevAlk sites with broken links and 20-step checkouts. And don't forget about alcohol sales compliance. Navigating the three-tier system can be daunting, but it's essential to ensure your operations run smoothly and are legally compliant. Enter ExcelPay. From a one-tap, compliant checkout to comprehensive sales data, ExcelPay has you covered and can make your existing site a storefront. Visit excelpay.io forward slash BOD to get an exclusive 10% off your account. That's A-C-C-E-L-P-A-Y dot I-O forward slash B-O-D. Sarah, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to chat wine with you all. Well, let's just hop in. So you and your co-founders, Zoe and Kendra, met through Stanford Business School. What was your interest in wine and you know, what made you all decide to do this project? Yeah, um, my interest in wine, funny enough, actually came from craft beer. I was a home brewer. I used to host a supper club in my apartment, highlighting local beers and food with a chef. I considered myself, you know, that foodie friend and person. And actually, like a lot of our customers, you know, enjoyed wine occasionally, but found it to be somewhat intimidating and hard to to crack into, wasn't confident in my own knowledge in wine, and actually at Stanford decided to join the wine club. And that was really, you know, the first time that I started learning about wine and got the opportunity to, you know, travel all over California, visiting these small wineries and um, really demystified wine for me and and met all these amazing makers and artists and farmers and people that, you know, I was thinking, this is wine. When I go to the store, why don't I see, you know, these people represented or why am I not feeling this sort of craft farmer story? I'm seeing this sea of labels. And that was really like where the initial aha idea for Maker came. And the can piece was really borrowed from craft beer of what I saw working in that industry and feeling like it's not wine that maybe millennials aren't as attracted to. It's how it's presented. We can make it more convenient, highlight the people behind it, really help you feel connected to it and and smart rather than dumb when you think about wine. Like that is really an interesting idea. Did you do a lot of research into that or was this all based on your gut instinct? I would say initially it was gut instinct. And then I actually took a course at Stanford from Alyssa Rapp, who is the former CEO of Bottle Notes called Global Dynamics of the Wine Industry. There was actually a course like that at business school. Uh, And wow. Yeah. And taking that class really strengthened my excitement about this idea and was actually where I first wrote my first like memo talking about what maker could be. The final project for that class was design an innovative wine brand. 
in that course, I really learned about the dynamics of the wine industry, of the three-tier system, of understanding fragmentation and supply and how a lot of these amazing producers have a hard time getting their products to market. And, you know, separate from being a consumer brand, from the very beginning, we always thought Maker could be this platform for independent winemakers to be able to share their products with new people in a new way. So how do you find the winemakers that you're going to work with? From the very beginning, we've typically started with wines that we're excited about and ABAs. And we actually go and canvas that region and interview and talk to lots of winemakers. So in the very beginning, for example, we, you know, we're excited about Pinot Noir from potentially uh, Mendocino, Santa Barbara, uh, Monterey, and would literally hit the road, go talk to winemakers, get to know the space. And because we were looking for really interesting stories and also diverse producers, it really made the world pretty small. And after we brought on our first couple of winemakers that we were excited about, the majority of new winemaker partnerships have come in from referrals. So, you know, one of our first winemaker partners, Chris Christensen, he introduced us to Alice Sutro, who ended up doing our first Cabernet. You know, she introduced us to Martin at Alpe Orsa Wines, and he ended up doing our Chardonnay. And we do get inquiries all the time now from people that see the cans or that know one of our winemaker partners about specific projects. And we, you know, talk to every single winemaker that that writes in, and um, we often get to know them over a period of months and years before we actually do a collab. You know, Tara Bajale, who we just did our first vintage with last year, we got to know her two years earlier at Slow, the wine event, and just kept in touch. And when there was that intersection of, oh, we want to do an orange wine, that was really a style that resonated with her that partnership came to fruition. So I think it's sort of this mix of art and science and, you know, plug, we're always looking for new producers to talk to. So I'd love to hear from you if you are a producer and listening to this. (laughs) Now you've got the business. Can you just talk us through a bit about how much wine are you selling? How many SKUs have you got? And who's your primary customer and what do you know about them? So we started our first release with 40,000 cans. Now we've scaled up to about 22,000 cases of wine. Since early 2020, we launched right as the pandemic was kicking off, which definitely led to, you know, a lot of interesting stories. We're primarily a D2C company. We sell 80 to 90 percent of our wine D2C today, but wholesale is rapidly expanding. And when I think about our core customer set, we do a lot of surveying of our customers, which is one of the really neat things about having such a big online base. And we see that 45% of our customers are in this 35 to 44 age group. 90% now of our club customers are women. And, you know, so that sort of mom group, older millennial women group, you know, a bit older, so they do care about quality, but also convenience and portability and wine fitting into their lifestyle. And so tell me a little bit about how the business works. I mean, there's a can club, I know. And what proportion of the business does that make up versus individual sales? And if you can describe the can club as well. A little less than half of our online sales comes from can club members. So either in their subscription boxes or we're actually finding that a third of our can club members are ordering in between their quarterly shipments. So they're really excited about all of the drops and new wines that we release. And I think to answer your earlier question on the SKU set, we release between 15 to 20 wines per year. We have six core wholesale wines that, you know, we do in much larger quantities. And then we do have several can club only wines that are typically esoteric, unique, really special. The sort of pet project of one of our winemakers, for example, this year we did you know, a carbonic Sangiovese and orange Vermentino from Tatera Bajale or Cabernet Pfeffer from Nicole Walsh at Serre. So really unique wines that we want to educate around and that we do in, in really small quantities, sometimes, you know, a hundred, couple hundred cases. Mm, I'm dying to try the Cabernet Pfeffer. Oh, it's really good. You know, you just kind of have it chilled and it's this really light, delicious wine. 
But going back to the Can Club for a second. Yeah. Uh, so can you, for listeners who are not familiar with with it, can you, so it's a quarterly shipment. How much does it cost? How much wine comes in that ship? So you can choose either 12 cans per quarter or 24 cans per quarter. Each can is a third of a bottle. So, you know, it's a four, eight bottle equivalent of wine, which is really helpful to help customers understand the bottle equivalent because to help contextualize the price. And the price depends on the cans you select. So it's completely customizable each quarter two weeks before your box goes out, you're allowed to select the wines that you want from, let's say, our 17 SKUs. Our cans range in price from $7 per can all the way up to $15 per can, you know, for our Old Vine Zin or, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon. And the 12 can members get 10% off the total basket and the 24 can members get 20% off. So it's really like design your own adventure there. And I think what a big learning, you know, has definitely been that just design the subscription that you would be in, not to overwhelm people with wine. People have asked for, can we do monthly? Can we do more than 24 cans? And I really want to avoid that feeling of, everyone knows that feeling when you have a subscription and you're overwhelmed with product and you get that like, Ugh, it's piling up. I don't want this. I want to cancel. Totally. And so I think the key to it succeeding has been us really picking an amount that keeps people wanting more and ordering in between shipments rather than being overwhelmed and canceling. <laughs> if you're outside the wine industry, sourcing wine is one thing, but also there've been shortages of cans. How did you get started? Do you have your own canning line? How do you deal with things like um, oxygen and linings? Do you find some wines are better than others? How did you meet your winemaker? Tell us how you actually physically built this brand. Yeah, we're a highly leveraged wine business. We don't have any of our own facilities or anything like that. And that's partly dictated by our model that we work with all these different winemakers. You know, each maker can is from a different independent producer that we love, has the name of their winery and their signature on the front and a story about them on the back. And so we aren't making the wine. They are. They are the stars. And partly out of necessity, like we funded this business in the beginning with Kendra and I ourselves and needing to make it as low cost as possible. How it worked in the beginning, and I'll, I can share a little bit how we've scaled to today, is we partnered with a mobile canning line called the Canvan, another awesome women-owned business, also got their roots in craft beer, and they meet us at the winery. So if we're canning Pinot Noir from Hanley Cellars, you know, the Canvan will drive up to Anderson Valley and we will can the wine directly from the winemaker's tank with the winemaker and, you know, winery workers there. And we're shoulder to shoulder with the winemaker canning wines. And it's the most fun day. And we're doing that for, you know, one to three days, depending on the run size. And then in the early days, we'd move the cans to our a warehouse, which was really like a, a garage space. <laughs> warehouse would be generous. And, you know, we'd ship it out ourselves. Today, we work with a 3PL. And today, for our larger runs, we do move the wine before canning to a central facility that has a high-speed canning line because the, the mobile canning line doesn't make sense for super large runs. But we still work with the can van on a lot of those small club drops. And, you know, we still go to every canning ourselves as the founders. And it's a great way to bond with the winemaker and really feel their story. You know, we, we interview them and we talk to them. But when you're on the property and you're canning wines with them and you're talking through the process and you're working side by side with them, it really deepens that partnership. And it's a special part of what we do. And I'm curious to know, so knowing that wines are going in a can, is there something that winemakers are doing differently to sort of you know, make any adjustment or, you know, really think about like, this is the format it's going to be in. This is kind of what we need to do from a chemical perspective or, you know, from a sensory perspective in or gas perspective in order to make these wines shine in this format. Yeah. And because of our model, I'm pretty confident in saying that we've canned more fine wines than any company in the world. You know, we're doing 15 to 20 different wines from different winemakers every year and a vintage every year across all different types of grapes and wines and styles. My co-founder Zoe, who leads our operations, would be better at answering this question. But the short of it is, yes, wines do need to be finished differently for cans. And lots of different types of wines are suitable for cans. You know, it is an anaerobic environment, so there's no oxygen exchange 
as there would be with a cork. And we've developed extensive guidelines in terms of, you know, sulfur, pH, ABV that is best suited for a can. And really like the the TLDR of it is minimal intervention wines and canning wines, very fresh and, you know, really natural style wines are, are best for the can. There can't be a lot of manipulation. There can't be a lot of SO2 added. And so it really aligns well with what our customers are looking for too. The second piece I would say on this is that you want to can wine when it's ready to drink. You can't expect it to age favorably in the can. I almost think of it as like freezing it in time to some extent. So that doesn't mean that you can't can big reds, but it means that you should can those reds after aging. So, you know, we're canning our 2022 Zinfandel that's been, you know, aging in barrel tank for two years and then canning it when the winemaker is happy with it versus canning it and letting it age in the bottle. So those have been some of the learning and a lot of trial and error to lead us there. But Okay, so you're a DTC brand. From scratch, how do you get your first customers? So my background, actually, beyond being a huge food and wine freak, is performance marketing. So my background is in digital e-commerce. I, you know, led growth and user acquisition for tech companies primarily in the Bay Area. And so from the very beginning, I was excited about the potential for selling wine online and seeing the opportunity there. And then we also started the company as the global pandemic was kicking off. And the entire first year and a half, two years of the business, we grew through virtual tastings. The can is actually a perfect format for virtual tastings. It's you know a single serving of wine. And a lot of wineries are trying to do this thing where they're pouring bottles into little test tubes. And there's all types of problems with oxygen and things, but we were sending people already our six pack of wine. They would open. So we just graduated business school. I reached out to our network of a lot of our you know friends and classmates that were starting new roles and saying, hey, do you guys want to do a virtual tasting? Let your team know. And we'd sometimes have like 20 different teams at you know, certain large tech companies want to do a tasting. We'd send out six packs to all of their team members. And we had ourselves at first, and then eventually a couple of wine educators, virtual psalms that we've met along the way, lead tastings over Zoom and open three different cans, tell the story of maker, tell the story of each of the winemakers that made each of the cans. There's a lot of content with maker because we have these individual stories and people. And not only were those great sales that introduced people into our D2C network, but they basically got to do a 60-minute infomercial about Maker through this process. And so we found that a lot of those people after the tastings joined the club and were super engaged because they often did a tasting with one of the founders during a time when there wasn't a lot to do. (laughs) The virtual tastings have definitely slowed down. We actually still do do them and we do a lot of corporate gifting because of that experimentation. But I think that, you know, constantly looking for those differentiated acquisition channels that don't require a lot of spend has been a strength of ours and something we're constantly trying to innovate on. So let's talk about customer retention for a second, which is, you know, one of the trickiest propositions for DTC. What does that look like for Maker? I think that retention is actually a huge strength of makers. And it's really what I often talk about first, looking at our last deep dive into this, we're seeing 83% member retention after one year and a really high. Wow, that's huge. Fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, just really strong revenue metrics in that first year of of being a Can Club customer. And I think that's due to a couple of things. You know, the first is really designing a subscription that doesn't suck, as I mentioned earlier, of, you know, making sure they're not getting too much wine, making it really easy to cancel and skip, making it really easy to customize your box and not pay for wines that you don't want. And then I think those club-only member drops have been huge. So we've gotten to the point where our club is big enough that we can confidently make a wine and know that we can sell it just to the club. And so people don't want to leave the club because they want access to some of those, you know, cool small drops that happen throughout the year. And then I think the second big piece was investing in customer experience and customer support. Our first full-time hire outside of the three of us was customer support and, you know, hiring our amazing CX lead, Catrice, who has really given us this 
huge muscle and customer support for a company that's our size. Yeah. You know, one thing that we talked about in a previous conversation was that the number one reason people leave the can club is because they're pregnant, (laughs) which I found completely fascinating. So what other really interesting sort of nuggets have you found from your customer data? Yeah, I think that's a really great stat as well, to the point that we're talking about making little maker onesies that we can send people that leave the club so that they come back after (laughs) they have a kid. Your little basket. Yeah, like a new mom basket. But no, I think to your point, it really drives home who the demo is and it's getting you know more polarized over time. So I think I mentioned that 45% of our customers are in that 35 to 44 bucket. About 90% of our club customers are women. A couple other interesting insights from some of our member surveys that I pulled for you guys. 81% say maker is the only canned wine that they drink. So it's not like these are canned wine drinkers that find maker. It's more like they discover maker and they realize that the quality is good enough that it can become their after work glass of wine. The number one thing that people point out is the portion size and control to be able to open a can that's a third of a bottle Mm -hmm. and have a glass and a half of wine without wasting the whole bottle. Most of our customers are, you know, living with a partner or by themselves. And so opening a bottle on a weeknight can be stressful. I think that was a really interesting insight for us. And in the beginning, we kind of thought canned wine will be what you take, you know, hiking or to a tailgate. But when we started canning great wines, we started noticing in ourselves and then in our customers that it, we weren't just having it at tailgate. We were having it for that after work glass of yeah. wine. And that's when we started to say, oh, can we do Cabernet? Can we do single vineyard Pinot? Can we do some wines that we didn't necessarily think would be? where the consumer would go in cans. And that's where we found our club customers really gravitating to. And that is, that's what we're known for really is our premium reds. That female skew, I'm interested in that. Is that because word of mouth is spreading among people and their friends and that's why you're doing it? Or is the portion size particularly of interest to this group? Why so heavily female? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think in talking to like that mom profile, I just, I think that it's it's just interesting that profile like tends to get it. They don't ask why cans. They're excited about the portion size. You know, we try to keep the design gender neutral, but I think, you know, maybe that may may attract more women as well. I, I don't know that we saw, I mean, we have done some research on this topic and definitely have found that uh, millennials in particular really responded to cans. Gen Z as well. I think I'll be interested to see if Gen Zs really age into becoming your demographic or a huge component of your demographic as they kind of age into it and probably have some more disposable income. But it's very interesting to see the canned format come to the forefront because I think so many wine brands wanted to do cans and just weren't able to do them right. So I feel like it sounds to me like both the audience potential for cans as well as the technology are sort of coming together in a way that it's now enabling this to be a brighter spot in the wine business. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I think that a lot of bigger brands just tried to do what they were doing for bottles into cans. And actually, if you go into a lot of big grocery stores and buy the cans and open them all, I find that a significant portion of them have problems, you know, and that focus has really enabled us to to understand this deeply and have these earned secrets to be great at it. So, yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. I think on the point of why so many women, another thing that comes up a lot is transparency in wine and then also nutrition and, and sugar. I think the first year of the business, I answered all of our customer support inbound. So I got to see the questions that people are asking every day. And it's really interesting, just a lot of people asking the same questions about how much sugar is in this wine, how much sulfur is in this wine, a lot of miseducation around those things in particular. Okay, so now we're going to move to our very favorite topic, which is talking about money. <laughs> so you were initially raised, you've raised more than 2.3 million and you've got more than 30 investors. Can you tell us how did you get your original investors? And wh- what we'd like to know for all of our listeners who are going to go out and start brands is what's the process of seeking investment? What did you learn that you should do, that you should don't do? Give us your thoughts. 
Definitely. So our, you know, our first check actually came from venture fund near Stanford called Pear. And I actually was a scout for Pear while I was at business school, helping to scout other tech brands and got to know the team there very well. And we applied for a program that they were hosting on campus and were selected to be part of their Pear summer program. So they put in a small check and give you a space to help you know, build your company and, and guidance and advice. And so that was definitely huge for us. You know, beyond that, I think that what I've been really proud of at Maker is that our investor base is you know, as diverse and interesting as the winemakers that we highlight. And most of the capital that we have raised comes from small angel checks and amazing operators that we've met along the way from other founders to wine industry folks to people outside of the industry. I think a big challenge in Alcbev in particular are that there are a lot of firms and funds that don't invest in alcohol or vice categories. But you know, I think the, the best way to attract amazing investors is to be a thought leader in your space and and to be crushing it. And um, we've, you know, we've kind of had an unorthodox way of, of finding folks and it's worked for us. And so talk to us about the investor landscape, as it will, just in terms of, you know, running a company. So you mentioned that some of these investors are angel investors, but some of them, I imagine, might be more heavily involved in the company. You know, how is it that as a founder, you are able to structure the company in a way where you are, you know, moving forward with kind of what it is you want to do, but also taking into account these sort of experienced leaders and or, you know, investors who are bringing a lot of capital to the table? Yeah, I think I think because of how we've built the company on on smaller checks, we have this amazing deep bench of experts across all these different, you know, types of industries and functions that we can call on at different times and as the business scales, we have different needs. And so that's been this amazing secret weapon, but it also doesn't feel like there's, you know, a singular investor that, you know, has outsized. We've done a good job of you know also being able to to keep all of them happy and make those decisions so so when you hit those first big milestones like the media says you're now doing more than a million in, in sale how does that change your business once you get to sort of um scale do you suddenly have to change the way you're doing things like i know a lot of businesses find that the moment they get bigger is the moment that they have lots of challenges because you know they maybe have to get your own facilities how how does it change once you hit those success milestones i think running a startup inherently the business changes every 3 to 6 months and that is what i loved about performance marketing and what gets me really excited about running the growth and user acquisition at maker is that you know, in the beginning, like I mentioned, we grew through virtual events. And it was this incredible negative user acquisition cost channel. And it's always thinking, what is the next opportunity like that? You know, what is the next arbitrage opportunity for growth? And it's always keeping your ears to the ground and looking out for that. I think what's been really amazing is having uh, mentors and talking to founders in other industries slightly ahead of us to learn what they're seeing what they're doing. You know, we've found great success in having amazing affiliate partners and referral programs right now, like thinking through other opportunities for growth that don't involve, you know, paid marketing and and lots of spend. Another kind of cool example of that is our advent calendar. That was sort of a, a project that was a shot in the dark of, oh, we should try this for the holidays one year, we can do a 12 days of canned wine. Each day is a different wine. And we started off kind of late for that year. And we just saw the immediate demand pull. Same exact wines as we sell in a 12 pack, but in a different box. And it was giftable. And all of a sudden became 50% of our sales in that year Q4. And now we're doubling the number of advent calendars that we do each year. And it's just this crazy demand pull, dozens of you know press hits each year about it. And just an example of like testing new things constantly and doubling down where you're seeing impact and that that pull of product market fit. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. The advent calendar is, yeah, it's 12 cans and they fit, you know, right next to each other. So it's actually not that much bigger than our our 12 pack. 
Um, but figuring out how to put it in a box and not have it break and send it to people was sort of a classic startup story. My customer support lead and I, you know, spent hours in a parking lot with different samples, dropping it as UPS or FedEx would drop it, you know, really just throwing it against a cement floor. And, you know, the first year we did this as a little test, we did have some percentage of advent calendars have damage. So we, that next year, we spent months sort of perfecting that design. We designed everything, you know, ourselves with the help of a packaging designer. And it's, you know, one of those things that is, yeah, definitely one of those startup stories. The second year during COVID, we actually got our boxes held up in Minnesota and we were approaching the deadline that we needed to get pre-orders to people. And we found this couple on Craigslist that were willing to drive the calendars from Minnesota to California to get the pre-orders out in time. Wow. Yeah. So they're the the couple that saved Christmas. But yeah, we, we try to improve it each year. It really is our labor of love. So this year we added, you know, if you scan the cans, you get a short tasting video of each of the wines. You know, we highlight the makers and the box of each wine. So we really hope that each night you're discovering a new maker and a new product. And the advent calendar could be seen as gimmicky, but I think the reason that it works is that it really ties into our core value prop of discovery and, and doing it in our own way and of, of, of highlighting those makers. So that would, that would be the advice I'd give people is, you know, make really smart bets, but in ways that really reinforce your core values and and what you're about. And let's talk a little bit about moving into wholesale. So Maker started out and was DTC, now is in wholesale channels with, I think you said, six different SKUs. So talk about that process. How did you have to re-envision the product offerings and way that you work in order to work in retail stores? It's been so interesting. It's like starting a completely new company, <laughs> learning really the ins and outs of the wine industry and how to build distribution in a smart way. Um, we had experimented in, we've built up now an awesome account base of, you know, on-premise, off-premise, grocery venues, hotels, but all direct to trade. So really learning how to, to service um, these customers and close them ourselves. And, you know, they're, they're really and uh, up and down the West Coast. That does mean looking at, at the products too. So to your point, one like small example is that because online you have all of this space to talk about wines, give context, give story. When you're looking at wine on a shelf, you need to make sure that it reads as white wine. For example, if you have white wine in a funky rainbow can or a blue can, it may take people a second to understand this is white wine. And so some of the things that we did were really different that worked online. We had to really revisit offline, also making sure the varietal on the can was much bigger, for example. Another piece was that a lot of our ultra premium wines were much higher priced online. And we could support that because we found this niche of people that were really excited about these wines. You know, in wholesale, we had to think about which wines we offer in wholesale that could support that channel. How big do you think this can get? And I'm, I'm thinking here particularly of that there are constraints around cans. There have been problems with sourcing aluminium and all sorts of things. How big do you think the canned wine market can get? I'm extremely bullish on canned wines. It's the fastest growing format in wine today, not only looking at the market stats, but also some of those values that I talked about for our customers, really caring about sustainability, convenience, quality, and we're insanely hyper-focused on cans and know that it can be huge. When I think about Maker in you know, a couple of years, I really think that I want Maker to be this trusted brand for people like us that we're learning about wine to say, how do I trust that something is, you know, made in the right way by someone that, you know, is doing things the right way that has an interesting story that is making quality wine that I trust to teach me about wine. I want maker to be that stamp of approval and a place that amazing independent winemakers can go to, to share and launch their products. How much of this is driven by your customer feedback? How much is, are people saying, look, I would really like a Sauvignon Blanc or does that factor into it? So much of it. We 
we survey our customers constantly and are looking at our support inquiries constantly. Um, and especially for those smaller club wines, we're asking the club what they want to see and, and going out to try to find those. For example, this year we're doing a sparkling Senso, and um, that was you know directly something that the club voted on is what they wanted. They wanted a sparkling red. So that's kind of been a secret weapon of ours. And some people are probably like, why did you put Cabernet pepper in a can? Um, we found that actually for those best customers, the more esoteric, the more that they can learn something and feel smart when they're drinking wine, we've really leaned into that. And it's it's been a little counterintuitive to what you see, especially other canned wine brands doing. And, you know, I think for us, it's, if you're not willing to talk about who made the wine, I think that's a problem. And so that transparency has been really helpful to us and not really something I see a lot of other competitors in our space doing, which I think is telling. It was interesting to me to read uh, that there are more than 100 producers who are in line right now to work with Maker. So I'm curious to know, you know, you're already working with something like 20 different producers. What is the value proposition for the producers? Why are there so many producers who are interested in joining the company and working with the company? That's a really great question. And first of all, I think it's interesting because so many of them that we work with want to work with cans, and that might be surprising to some people. And I think that they're excited about cans because these are people that care about organic, sustainable farming, um, you know, having sustainable practices. And the most unsustainable part of making wine is typically the packaging and the glass bottle. So they're really interested in it, but often for their own brands, it either doesn't fit with their brand or they're nervous to, to try it out. And so we offer this way for them to get to try cans. And often when people work with us in the future, sometimes, you know, they'll do their own can lines for their brand after, after they kind of learn the ropes and get, get comfortable with it. So I think, I think that is really interesting. And the other piece that Maker offers is, you know, beyond purchasing their wine and being, you know, a way that they can grow their business. We are making them the star. And that's pretty unusual for a lot of these producers that work with third-party companies. They're used to folks buying their wine, white labeling it, hiding where it came from. And it was the first couple of times we would talk about it with winemakers. They're like, wait, you want to talk about me? I'm confused. And, you know, over time, we're, we're really telling their stories. And we're, I view us as storytellers, curators, not winemakers, not sommeliers. And so I really think they are the experts in wine and we're the experts in bragging about them and, and making them cool. And so I think what I'm most proud of, other than creating an awesome team at Maker and um, being a great place to work for my own employees, is that a lot of the winemakers that we worked with in the very beginning are now in their fourth vintage with us. And they're you know doubling, tripling the amount of wine that they're doing for Maker each year. And we go from being this kind of fun, small project for them to being a meaningful part of how they're growing their business and their brand, how they're getting press, how they're introducing their wines to new customers. And all of our club customers, for example, we give them, you know, discounts at all of our partner wineries to go buy bottles. We would love you to discover our Pinot Noir from Hanley Cellars, and then go buy that bottle from the Hanley team and go visit their winery in Anderson Valley. Like that makes us so psyched. And we really view it as supporting each other. And they often do the same. Like a lot of our winemaker partners sell our cans in their tasting rooms and talk about the maker project. So it's this really cool symbiotic relationship that is really special. So where to from here? Where are you going to be in the next two years, the next three years, the next five years? I see Maker really becoming a trusted brand across the U.S. for people to discover wine, learn about wine, and discover new producers in their backyard. So we've to date, you know, highlighted wineries in California and Washington would love to highlight and work with wineries across the U.S., also really excited to expand into wholesale in a big way. We're really excited, particularly about on-prem. 
We've seen incredible velocity with Maker in um, hotels, in venues, in places where discovery and quality is really important. And I think that we've seen that there are many more placements for canned wine than you know what is currently in the market today. And we really want to be a leader there. And yeah, that's what I'm most excited for over the next few years and growing maker into that household name. Let's focus on millennials for a second. You know, we did this millennial and Gen Z report, and I know that you listened to our episode on that and it had a couple of interesting takeaways. So I want to make sure that we can we can cover off on that. You know, one of our findings was around how significant family and friends are as a pathway to try new products. Uh, how has that worked out for the the maker brand? And how do you kind of help people, you know, trial and get that word of mouth out there? When I heard that, I was 100% nodding along about family and friends. I think we hear over and over from our customers, and I definitely felt as a wine consumer that wine can be overwhelming and there are so many options out there and you really just want one or more people that you trust to vouch that this is good wine. That has been an extra challenge for us with an online business is how do you how do you do that? So I think that this year we've really experimented a lot with referrals and of our best club customers introducing maker to other people. You know, we've done campaigns where we allow our customers to share and gift wines to other folks. And so I think that's been a big piece. And also why I think we see UGC and advertising and affiliates and influencers really taking off because a lot of millennials actually see the influencers that they follow as trusted friends, or they feel that they get to know that person's sensibilities and really trust what you know, what they say. And so it's really finding those people that align with that core audience. We've really found that that UGC advertising and partnering with influencers has, has been really helpful for us. Yeah. One of the other things our report showed was how open younger people are to subscriptions. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you found about uh, people going for subscriptions? Definitely. And I, I found that to be very true. I assumed that people would buy an intro pack from Maker like the wine and then sign up for a subscription. What's been really interesting is the vast majority of our subscribers subscribe without trying the wine, at least online. And that was, yeah, that was very surprising to me. And I think there are people that are attracted to the discovery piece, to the subscription piece, to wanting to try something. Now, once they purchase the subscription, you have to keep them and win them over. But I found that really surprising. (laughs) Yeah, it's fascinating. Well, I think this is a good place to end. And Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking with us about Maker. It's such an interesting story. Thank you so much for for having me. And yeah, happy to always connect with anyone in the industry, especially that's starting their own company. So I, I hope people feel free to reach out to me as well. And it was a great, great conversation. So thank you. Find out more about millennial and Gen Z audiences. We've surveyed more than 1,300 Gen Zs and millennials from across the US asking them everything we wanted to know. We worked with a designer. It's very easy to navigate and understand, and it's available through researchandmarkets.com, one of the world's best market research stores. The study offers a clear action plan to everyone who works in beverages, from alcohol brands to soft drink companies to regional wine bodies to importers and distributors. It's for anyone who's looking to understand millennial and Gen Z drinking behavior and to sell more effectively to these younger audiences. From what styles people are drinking at which specific occasions to what motivates them to choose and buy what they do. There are plenty of insights to help marketers and producers with their product development, sales and advertising. So, Eric, How do people get hold of it? Well, we've made it very easy. We've got a link to the report in the show notes, or you can go to researchandmarkets.com and search for the name of the report. It's Millennials and Gen Z. 
a comprehensive study of alcohol and non-alcohol beverage purchase and consumption behavior. If you just type in millennials and Gen Z, it will pop right up. And if you don't want to buy the report, keep your eyes on the beverage trade media in the coming weeks as we will be doing a lot of media appearances. Yeah, but of course you do want to buy the report, I guarantee. And please note, this is the first of what we are hoping will be many reports. In fact, if you've got a burning question and you want it answered with serious research, send us an email as we can set the research in motion. It's info at businessofdrinks.com. Okay, here we are at Last Call, where we talk about what we're drinking right now. Erica, I'm always so envious. You have access to the most amazing drinks. So what have you discovered lately? Well, this week, I am going farther flung. I am sipping a high tide THC margarita. And so this is a a new category that we haven't yet touched on in the business of drinks, but uh, something that I'm interested in exploring. So these margaritas are for sale right now in Massachusetts, and they're starting to uh, look at expanding into other states. But it's it's a very interesting company to me because I think that they went about this in the right way. So first of all, they are focusing on uh, margaritas, right? So this is the High Tide has three different flavors of margaritas, and that is the most popular cocktail in the United States at on-premise venues. So from my perspective, like this type of drink is easing people into a category that previously was stigmatized or that they might be a little bit, you know, um, nervous about if they haven't tried before. And this company is definitely going for premium positioning. So the label on the margarita that I was drinking, it says cannabis infused mocktail crafted with key lime, agave, and a hint of rosemary salt. Mm. And it it really is a delicious drink, and it's a pretty good bargain. It's sold uh, at this dispensary that I got it in Massachusetts, sold for, uh, I think it was $5.50. So the co-founders, Shay Coakley and Joshua Grab, they're drinks entrepreneurs who founded and sold some companies, including a coffee company, and have worked in various uh, drinks roles, including BevAlk brands and water brands, among others. So they kind of have a pretty good uh, understanding of how the entire drinks business works. And what's interesting to me about this emerging category of drinks is a couple things. So one, it's a measured low dose amount. So these drinks, these high tide margaritas, they have just five milligrams of THC. And that's a low amount. If you're, if people, for people who aren't like familiar with THC amounts, you know, five milligrams is kind of like a a gentle buzz sort of thing. But these drinks are using kind of a new generation of technology where they have rapid onset times. So it's not like the pot brownies of yore where you would, you know, have a square of pot brownie and first of all, hope that you know what you're, you know, getting in that brownie in terms of dosage, but also it would take a long time to digest and to feel any effects. But generally with these new types of drinks, you know, you're feeling a bit of a buzz within about 20 minutes or so. So it's more in line with with an alcoholic drink, which I think is really interesting. And so for this high tide cocktail, one, it tasted great. Two, the buzz came on very gently and it is very sort of, you know, a social chilled out sort of vibe. You know, I didn't feel tired. I didn't feel out of it. I still felt social. Like, and and that's always a concern, I think, for people who are not familiar with THC is that, oh my God, am I going to have a little bit? Am I going to be, you know, couch lock? Am I going to feel like I can't move? Or am I going to feel like I'm too paranoid to talk? And that's really not what these sort of drinks are about. But in addition to those attributes, It's low calorie, about 80 calories per can. And, you know, you can't really taste any marijuana flavor in there. It really does taste like a margarita. So I think the biggest challenge facing this category of products is that right now they're only sold in licensed dispensaries. So that distribution network, being able to figure out that distribution network of how you expand beyond one state into multiple states, et cetera, et cetera. You know, every state has kind of a different approach to these sorts of drinks. So nationwide, some states do allow uh, alcohol um 
carrying stores, so liquor stores, wine stores, to carry these THC products. And that's something that is just starting to happen. But in other states, uh, it's really confined to these licensed dispensaries. Um, and that's the case so far uh, in Massachusetts. So, so let me ask you a couple of questions because I know almost nothing about these drinks. I did try some when I was in the States, but they were like awful, you know, very artificial flavoured sodas. So if the buzz comes on slowly, is the idea of that that you're aware of how much you've had so you don't keep drinking and suddenly have masses of drug in your system that, that hits you all at once? Yeah, definitely. It seems very analogous to me as having the ABV on a can of beer or, a, you know, a, it's a can of wine or anything like that. So I think I think it is really smart to understand how much of, yeah, that you are drinking of any substance. You know, we talked about this in a previous episode, but I'm a huge proponent of seeing the alcohol percentages, the ABV on drink menus, for example, and definitely on labels. Like, you know, on wine bottles, we see it as, you know, 13% or what have you, oftentimes lower. Sometimes these days in the U.S., you're seeing those wines go north of 15%. But I think it is really helpful and not just helpful, but I think consumers are really expecting Mm. to understand how much of a an intoxicant is going to be in what they're drinking so that they can modulate and not overconsume. Like, doesn't matter if it's THC or alcohol, but having the knowledge about what is in the can or bottle uh, that you're drinking, I think is becoming more and more important. And, and how much can you actually drink? So if you if you drink TCH, are you then like so mellow and chill that, that that's it for the night? You only want one drink? Or, I mean, how does it work? I mean, it depends on your tolerance. Like for me, a one drink at five milligrams would be enough. And then I just feel sort of social, lightly buzzed. But for people who, you know, consume a lot of THC, I don't know, they could maybe have two drinks or more. Uh, but I would say that the the way that I so far have consumed them is to have, you know, one THC soda. And these are, you know, kind of taller cans. And so, you know, so one can could make two drinks and then you're only getting 2.5 milligrams at a time. So I think that, you know, you really have to start to become familiar with the amount of any intoxicant that you want to consume. Mm, Interesting. So tell me, what are you drinking? Okay, so I'm still drinking wine and uh, I've been drinking a lot of Italian this last few weeks. And so I've come across a new product to one of my favorite producers. This is a winery called San Leonardo. It's an Alto Adige and they've made a rosato called the Gemma from a grape called Lagrange. I love San Leonardo. It's a spectacular winery under the the Dolomite um, mountains. This is getting very cold where I live. So I'm drinking the last of the rosés of the year. And this one um, is perfect because Lagrange which is uh, indigenous to Alda Adige, it can be quite a weighty grape. I actually don't love it as a full-bodied red wine, but it's perfect for rosé. It's very fruit forward. It's got lots of berry tanginess because of the high acidity. It's got lots of spice. San Leonardo itself, the reason I love it so much, it's a very ancient property that was in use in Roman times. It's had this incredible history. It's still got Roman ruins on the place. It was once a monastery, then it was occupied by the German high command in World War II. So it managed to survive all of that, but it almost did not survive Parker Point's. It had a very nice export business to the United States in the 90s, was doing very well. They specialize in very elegant Cabernet blends. And that all came to a screeching halt with the ascendant of the plush fruit bombs. It nearly destroyed the business. But the family held their nerve. They decided they didn't want to make wines in a new style, but they would just continue to wait until elegance came back into fashion. Um, and the strategy finally worked. The The wines are now very, uh, very ritzy and high priced. They haven't changed the way that they're made, but I think it's a testament to sticking with your principles. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds delicious. The thing that a lot of these new companies just don't have, you know, and we talk about kind of all categories in this podcast, but they don't have that legacy, that legacy history and that deep uh, sort of, you know, like romantic background of generations. Like I really miss that when we're talking about other categories. Well, I was talking to the current owner and he his, he took over the business from his um, father and he had to come back in the 90s. And he was very young and they were faced with this financial disaster. And I was like, you know, how did you get through it? And the, the job he'd had in South Africa was looking after lion cubs. There was lion breeders and it was his job to feed the lions. And I was like, oh, what was that like? He said, <laughs> he said, he said it was really hard because you only 
feed lions once a week because in nature they only bring down prey animals like once a week. Because by the time you come around with the food, they're really, really hungry. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so he said he learned to stare down the lions and that way he, he managed to keep his nerve. <laughs> wow. Now that is a story. <laughs> and I mean, from lions to wine, you can't beat that. I, I don't know what type of new company might be out there, but I don't know that there's a story to parallel that story. That's pretty fascinating. Uh, it is a great story. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, with that, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you soon. Bye. Thank you for joining us today on The Business of Drinks. Follow us on Apple and Spotify or wherever you're listening and tap that notification button so you'll be the first to know when a new episode drops. Also, please help us spread the word. Tap those star ratings and share on social. It truly helps us get noticed. And if there's something that you would like us to cover on the podcast, tell us. We're at podcast at businessofdrinks.com or contact us on LinkedIn. We want to hear from you and we really do respond to messages. See you soon.